0: morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. All right. Welcome to Bible class. It's good to be here with you today. Welcome to those who are listening on the air or also later online. For those of you here, you know who I am, but Phil's listening online later on or currently now. I'm Pastor Kevin Thompson, and I'm pleased to be with you here for Bible study. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you just one more week after we got to celebrate the, the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Filled with great joy to know that you have not only promised our Savior, but he has come and he is risen indeed. As so, the Lord, we thank you with unending thanks for that great gift, the gift that gives us life both now and forever. And now, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us, that as we dig into your word again today, we may be strengthened in faith towards you, and we may be able to share that faith with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. uh, A couple of just logisticals for those who are here in person, because I couldn't find the Bible cart in time. The Bible cart is right there in the back center if you'd like a full copy of the scriptures. If you just want the handout as we typically do with the lessons we'll be looking at today, I said those on the inside row here, kind of spread out. So if you can't find one, maybe look around. I see the next uh, stack right there near Matt, So if you're looking for one. Otherwise, the full copy of Scripture and back. So as always, we will be looking at the le- assigned lectionary readings for the week to come. Um, just going to tell you, next week's readings are a little long. So as we get into this, It's a little bit longer, but you know what? We can't have too much of God's word, right? So uh, we are going to dig in first to Acts chapter 9, and it's the first 22 verses. As you'll notice, I think Pastor Thomas, who taught last week, talked about this a little bit. But right after Easter, we don't have necessarily an Old Testament reading first. But for now, this season, we have a first reading. Um, Looking especially at the book of Acts, because Acts is not in the Old Testament. So that would be just incorrect to call it Old Testament. Uh, but we get to read Acts as we get into the fact that not only have we, have we just celebrated our, our Lord who has, been risen from the, who has risen from the dead, but now how does that go and spread into the many different countries and the peoples? Thank you, Anne. I appreciate that for, for spreading out those sheets. Um, so we'll look at Acts chapter 9, the first 22 verses. I know it's long, but I would really like um, to just first read through that portion of Scripture. So beginning at Acts chapter 9. Looking for a handout? All right. Anne, do you have them still? There she is right there. You're welcome. Yeah, I apologize for the inconvenience. Should always be able to know where the Bibles are. That if we know where they are, we won't have this problem. All right. So Acts chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Here ends our reading for next week. So my, my guess is for many people gathered in this room, it's probably a familiar account of Scripture. Probably most of you have heard this account because it's, um, well, striking to say the least, but uh, an account of Scripture that we, we turn to very often in our circles. But as always, we get to look at something that might even be familiar to us, and I pray that something new will come to you today. So if we look back at this in the beginning, we have Saul. In the beginning of this reading, it says Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so we look at this and we have the fact that Saul is completely opposed to the disciples, the people who are, as it says in a few verses later, the way. And so the way refers to those who are following Jesus, which is easier for us to remember because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the way we're referring to all those people who are following Jesus, Jesus as the Lord, the Savior, the Son of God. And so here we have Saul's breathing threats and murder. So to put it lightly, he was very opposed to them. That would be putting it extremely lightly, right? I mean, literally breathing threats. And this isn't like, oh, I'm going to get you. I mean, he's literally imprisoned or binding these people, imprisoning them, and taking them off to others who will then even kill them. Now, my understanding in my reading and study is that we don't have any records of Saul actually killing Christians. Like by his own hands, by his own actual means. However, he was the one amongst others, but he was one who was primarily binding them and taking to them, them to others who would then kill them. And so I guess you could say, really, he was, I mean, he's just as much responsible as those who are actually doing the heinous acts of murder. And so this is how strongly opposed he was to them, to the Christians, the ones who were following Jesus. And the one thing I want to point out, um, and maybe you've heard this before, but Saul believed he was doing the right thing. Saul actually thought that by persecuting them in this way, he was, oh, this, hopefully this doesn't keep happening that he was actually doing the right thing. Because he saw that they were following Jesus and doing these different things. They weren't following all the Old Testament laws and all the ways that God had originally established. And so Saul wasn't just like, hey, yeah, I don't like you just because of whatever. He didn't like what they were doing because they were disobeying some of the original laws that God had given. So he thought that they were being unfaithful to God. So really, Saul was actually trying to be faithful to God. Now, when I say that, I'm not excusing what he did, okay? I'm not trying to say that what Saul did in persecuting Christians was good. But I do think so often we get so quick to just say, Saul, he persecuted Christians and he was horrible. Yeah, horrible things. But let's also remember, he was doing so out of a serious conviction for his God. Maybe he misunderstood what God said he would do through Jesus, right? And There are some other issues in there, but he was trying to do this for God. And so we look back at the, at, back in the scripture and it says right there in the first few verses, he was looking for the people along to the way. As he approached Damascus, there was suddenly a flash from heaven that came around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So first of all, we have this flash of light around him. Now, I, in, in the reading I've done, I haven't found anything that really can explain exactly what happened. But other than the fact that this is some like natural miracle that's going on this flash of light point is is the fact that god is using creation around to draw attention to what he's doing so to try to explain away what was this flash of light was it a bolt of lightning all this i don't know it was god using creation he's getting saul's attention because as we read he's going to do some great and amazing things with saul so this flash of light so again it points to the fact that our god is in control of everything including creation And so this whole um, account of Saul's conversion starts off, in a way, starts off with the fact that God's using creation to accomplish what he's going to do. And so then it says to him in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? It says, I am Jesus. Now, he hears this word say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When he says, who are you, Lord? That is not him saying, "I believe in you as Jesus Christ, the Lord and Risen Savior." That word "Lord" is not him making a big confession of faith, because as we see, he still had the, the scales over his eyes; he couldn't see and the like. So, this "Lord" right there is not an acknowledgment right away of Saul saying, "Yes, you are the Lord, my Risen Savior." He's confused, but he is using this term "Lord" as was often t- times used back then, so it more simply as a term of respect. Recognize, there's this voice somewhere. So he's given respect, but it's not a confession of faith. And so the voice says in verse five, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus, whom you're persecuting." Now, to your recollection, and the accounts of scripture before this, was Saul actually in person, face to face with Jesus, persecuting Jesus? No, thank you. Randy, Randy Shaken said, no, nope, he wasn't. Saul wasn't face-to-face persecuting Jesus in the sense that he's standing right here calling names at him and, and persecuting him and the like, and yet the voice says, you are persecuting me. Right here we have a great in, uh, in way in Scripture to talk about a, a huge doctrinal concept. The fact that when you persecute the Christians, the believers, you are persecuting Christ himself. Because the believers are part of this term we use so often that we don't even think necessarily about how significant it is. But believers are part of the body of Christ. And so we say that that's not just some term we like to use just for the fun of it, because it literally means we are part of the body. We are in him. So we are very much in Christ. And so therefore, as Paul, sorry, he will be Paul. Uh, Saul is going around persecuting he's persecuting these Christians face to face he's persecuting these Christians these people who are believers he's binding them, taking them off they will be murdered that's the same as if he were to face to face with Jesus in the flesh be persecuting him because they are part of his body and so then segue to today there's the same body that we're a part of the body of Christ We use it today. We are the body of Christ. All those who believe in Jesus Christ are part of his body. And so when you go out into this world and maybe you experience the persecution you might experience in different places you go, that's the same as those people also persecuting Christ himself. Yet we're 2,000 years later, and yet it's still the same thing. So let's look a little bit more at this. We see um, in verses 8 and 9, he saw rose from the crown. Although his eyes are open, he saw nothing. So he's without sight. Okay, and we look at this again and we see that there's this physical affliction. And the fact that God can use anything to direct people to him. And he will use anything. But specifically, physical affliction, God is using here with Saul to, to push him towards himself. And we see this in a couple other places in Scripture where God uses physical afflictions, possibly momentary physical or temporary physical afflictions in people's life that drives them to him. Now, when I say that, that is not meaning that you must have some physical affliction in your life, therefore, so that you can be closer to God. That's not a, has to happen to everybody, Okay? But for Saul, in the way that he was living, what God knew of Saul, because God knows Saul so personally, just like he knows every single one of you personally, he knew that this is what he needed, and this is the way that God was going to do it. So he uses this affliction, and it points, it directs Saul to what God's going to do, and that even, as we know, we read, will direct him to then confessing that God is the true God with Jesus Christ who has come and has risen. So we move on to verse ten, and we get the, the now kind of like this the other side of what's going on. So Saul's got this; these events go on, and then God appears to Ananias, and He appears to Ananias in a vision. But interesting, I think we might even skip over it because I did until I was reading commentary. Verse ten. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Disciple, it's a word that I skipped over when I was first reading. But think about it. God comes to Ananias in a vision, says Ananias, and then he tells him what he's going to do. And he comes to Ananias, who's a disciple, which very much means that he is a follower of the way. He's following the way. He's one of those people who Saul was persecuting. The very type of people that Saul was persecuting, binding and sending off to be murdered, is the very person that God will use to then bring Saul to faith. I don't know if it would be appropriate to say ironic, but it's something, right? The very people that Saul was persecuting is who God's going to use to bring him to faith. And so he uses Ananias, this disciple. And he gets to him and, and he tells him what he's going to do. And then in verse 11, he tells Ananias of how he will find Saul. He's on this, go to the st- street called Straight House of Judas. Look for the man named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And it's likely that most people believe that when, they, when we see this here in Scripture, that Saul is praying, that Saul is already kind of getting to a point where repentance is starting to work in his heart. Now, we haven't heard the confession of faith. He hasn't been baptized. We haven't had that full, but likely that you can tell by, I mean, think about it. Saul has this flash of light, this natural thing that's going on. He loses his sight. He heard from Jesus Himself speaking to him, and so we haven't heard the full conversion, we haven't confession of faith and conversion yet. But likely here he's praying. He something's working his heart. That something to be the Holy Spirit, right? So we have the Saul is praying. And so we see that he's starting to be moved. Uh, this the sign of repentance that's going on in his heart. And then we go on a little bit, and and Ananias, he answers the Lord. Look at verse 13. So the Lord tells Ananias what he's going to do. In verse 13, Ananias says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. God tells him, go do this, you'll find this man. He's like, have you, basically he's saying, have you heard of this man? You heard about the horrible things that he's been doing? And the fact that, and then the second half of that verse, it's not like just Saul's going off on a wild rage by himself. It says right here, and uh, verse 14, here he has authority from the chief priests. You heard what Saul's doing and the fact that he has authority from the chief priests to do these things? And yet, God, you want me to go to him? And can you hear it? As I use a very different tone of voice, right? I mean, tone of voice, obviously, as we know, is not in Scripture. But this is the way I hear it. God says to him, do this. He's like, what, seriously? Which, side note, I was listening to uh, it was Dr., Dr. Matthew Gibbs. And he was, he was commenting on this, the fact that but who was Ananias to challenge God, right? I mean, how bold of him that God literally appears to Ananias in a vision, and yet Ananias is like, wait, wait, are you sure, God? I mean, and now we hear of this sometimes in Scripture, right? Other people in Scripture who have had visions, and the Lord comes to them, and they challenge back. They say, but God, I'm not good enough. Or God, how can this be? And it's just one more time, and yet we hear a Scripture how some person is saying to God, wait, God, are you sure? Have you heard what this guy's going to do? And so here we don't have Ananias as compared to some other people in Scripture. Um, Ananias isn't saying, well, but I'm not good enough, or those things like we heard with Moses and the like. But he's like, but Lord, look what's ahead of me. Look at the serious threat and danger that I could be facing. And yet the Lord responds to him. And I think this is just such a beautiful part of this, this account. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument of mine. Which as always points us back to the fact that God's in control. For whatever reason, I, we can't understand. God was allowing Saul to go around persecuting as he was. Right? I mean, God could have struck down Saul any day he wanted. He wanted. And God allowed it, it was happening, and yet God sh- is showing, but he's still in control of this man. He's in control of all things. And God is saying, but he's my chosen instrument. And of all people too, Saul, I mean, this breathing murderous threats and doing horrible things, and yet he's chosen. He's chosen by God. Which if you look at that too, it's not like Saul did anything better than anybody else. It's not like he was the glorified saint that stood out above everyone else. Actually, it was completely the opposite, right? He was completely, he was breathing these threats against God and his son, Jesus Christ, and yet God says, I'm going to use him. He's chosen by me, and he's going to be my instrument. I will use him because ultimately God's going to use Saul to accomplish his purposes, which, as then we can point to, uh, right to the last verse, verse 22, his purposes to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And as it says, again, also in verse 15, to prove that he was Christ to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. The gospel could be spread. He's going to use Saul. As he also has in there in verse 16, it's not going to be easy. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I I don't really think that that verse there means that he's like, okay, Saul did these bad things, so therefore I'm going to make him suffer as like a payment for that not at all but rather that's just more of a reference to the fact that all those who follow christ will suffer for his name we see that elsewhere in scripture jesus christ says it himself those who follow me will be persecuted different ways different extents but those who follow christ will suffer because remember, they're still in this world, they're still experiencing the sin and those who are opposed to Christ and the devil and all his works and his ways, and so they will suffer on behalf of his name. All right, any questions on that? Because that kind of wraps up in that with one other thing I want to say, but I wanted to pause for a minute. Sometimes I just talk too much. I get so excited about this stuff, I want to give you a chance. Any questions or thoughts on this? Right. I'm going to repeat that just for everyone to hear. It reminds us of people today who are converted later in life can be some of the most bold and and, and, um, public, shall we say, uh, in spreading the gospel. Right? Did I restate that well for you? Yeah, absolutely. And so that points me to the fact, the other thing I wanted to say before we moved on to the other scripture verses, is the fact that here we have this conversion in Saul. Saul converted to Paul. He's converted from his lack of faith in Jesus as the Savior and the Lord into the faith. Okay, and so Saul has this very dramatic conversion, and maybe you've heard it before, said before, but I have to say it. This is not prescriptive to every Christian in this world. What I mean by that is Saul had a really dramatic—I mean, like his lights flashing, lost his sight. Then he's going on; he's led by this man who had a vision, and he spoke. Jesus spoke to him personally, speaking. Everyone on this heard this voice. That's pretty dramatic. I never had that. I'm guessing most people in this room and most people in this world never had that. And yet that doesn't mean that you're not converted, that you not have faith. Okay? Saul got it. That's pretty awesome. He's got no doubt. He knows who his Savior is. And yet you too, even though you haven't had that, if you haven't, maybe some of you have. I'm not putting it past you also. That's the other thing I want to make clear. God could do this. He could make a flash of light in your life and then all of a sudden make you lose sight and then he could do it all again. He could. He's God. He's told us in scripture he's not generally going to work in that way anymore, but he could. And I've, I know people personally in my life who have some very dramatic stories of how they feel like this was that moment in their life where they, it was pointed to them in their life where it's like, man, I just really felt, it was like this all tingling body feeling. I really felt like it. And had just this moment where clearly the Holy Spirit was working on me. You know what I say to them? That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Because God could do that. But that's not the basis of our faith. To have that or not have that is not how we know for a fact that we are saved. Because God doesn't have to work in that way. And the beautiful thing is, oh, it's not out today. We don't always have our baptismal font out over here in the gym. We know that in our baptism, we have that faith. That in our baptism, we have been converted. See, we don't speak of it that way, do we? I mean, how many people say when you were baptized, I was converted that day? Right? We don't speak of it, but we could, right? Because you're converted from a way of sin, live life in sin, and you're washed clean, and you're given faith. Well, that's the moment I get to point to. I don't, Like I said, I don't have some flash of light experience, but I have a baptism, and that's pretty awesome. That's a miracle. And I get to point to that, and I get to know, yeah, I have faith, and so can you. So... Thank you, Don, for bringing us to that, because that is really important um, to do. The one last thing I would say is, um, look at the verse 18. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose. And what happened to him? Baptized, right? It just went on about baptism. And he was baptized. See, he heard the word of God, and he received the sacrament. He was baptized. Which is why many commentators, when they read this, they would actually say, maybe that's not the mo- that was the very moment when he was finally converted. That his conversion didn't happen until he was actually baptized. This is by the power of his spirit washed there in the waters of baptism. All right. I don't have anything else to say. I'm super excited about this. Okay. Oh, I do have one more thing to say about that one. So typically, uh, we try to keep our pyramids here uh, at St. Paul's in matching with the season. But I'm just going to need to tell you this right now. Next week, our paraments will not be white. We're still excited it's Easter season. But next week, our paraments will be red. Because next Saturday is Confirmation Saturday here. And at St. Paul's, if you're not aware, we have confirmation service, uh, worship service on Saturday. Uh, because we're blessed with too many um, youth to be confirmed to be able to fit in here. And with all of our other uh, members on a Sunday. So we are going, actually, and this year we're going down to Concordia Seminary um, in St. Louis to have, host our service there. Um, but so with that, when we have confirmation, we have the paraments read as the Holy Spirit come in. The Holy Spirit has not only created faith in those youth, but has then enabled them to make this confession of faith public um, before everyone else. So we'll have all our paraments read, so that also we as a congregation get to celebrate that. So um, very fitting scripture too, right? We read from Paul and Saul to Paul, and then we get to also celebrate our confirmants getting confirmed. Which just pray for them as always. Uh, this is not in the readings, but something that we as pastors always say, continue to pray for our confirmants. I'm super excited to say we have 40 kids getting confirmed this year, which is amazing. So pray for them. If you haven't already, can start praying for them and continue praying for them as they um, stay strong in their faith. That's my commercial on that, but it's a super great thing to, to do. All right, let's move to our next reading to Revelation chapter five. So as again, typically our custom in our church body would be to have an Old Testament lesson, and an epistle lesson. However, we have Revelation. Revelation not being an epistle, so we have what we call it the second reading. So let's be proper and call our second reading for next Sunday. Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. I will read those verses. Revelation 5, verse 8 through 14. and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever And four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped here ends our reading second reading for next week get to revelation that's always fun right revelation to which there's a lot going on and um in chapter 5 here, we're going to start at verse 8 um, in worship, as I read, but just to give a context, can we kind of jump halfway into a chapter here? It's talking about how we have the Lamb of God, who's Jesus Christ himself, seated on the throne in the beginning of the first seven verses or so of chapter 5. It's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, seated on the throne, on the throne in heaven, and there's the scroll, the scroll which only the Lamb is worthy to open, to even take and open. And so right there, we're already getting a, a direction of the fact that Jesus Christ alone is worthy, far worthy above anything or anyone else in this world. And so here we have then again the lamb seated on the throne and is surrounded by a heavenly host with these four-winged creatures and 24 elders. And as we see later on, we have some more. But right in the, off in the beginning of verse 8, we have, he's taking the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the lamb. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so here we're we're shown a picture of worship. There they are in heaven before the Lamb of God sitting on the throne, and they're worshiping Him. They're falling down before Him with harp, um, and we see in other parts we know there's likely other instruments, and, and we'll get to the singing part. So they're worshiping Him. But part of that that I think sometimes it sounds a little weird to us at first is these bowls of incense. Or these, um, some translation would say like censures. So you have these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This isn't some weird practice, okay? This is just simply the fact that when you have the incense as it burns, with the smoke going up, it refers to the prayers rising up to, to God. The prayers of the saints, and saints being a reference to believers, to people, the body of Christ. So the prayers going up to God. That's really all this is referring to. So you have them worshiping, falling down, praising him with music, and their prayers going up to God, to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And actually, this um, type of reference, it was used elsewhere in Scripture. This whole with uh, burning incense, the prayers going up to God. If you look into the Psalms, you can see the same type of reference as well. How in the Psalms, it'll say a similar thing to the effect of prayers rising to God like incense. So this isn't some weird practice that, like, all of a sudden, where did this come from? This is just simply giving up our prayers to God. And there are some churches within our church body that actually use incense in worship. I'll be honest, I've never seen it in a congregation. I've only seen it at the seminary. Uh, I had some buddies fourth year that were really into incense. They loved it. Personally, I can't stand it because it, like, gets my allergies going. But um, they had the incense because, again, we could have it worship, and sometimes they'll actually have the the pastor or, or other assistants walk through the congregation Waving the censure which holds the incense burning with uh, um, Smoke going up so again. It's not some weird practice, but rather than just the fact in Scripture tells us the prayers rising up to God Okay, so we get back to this verse 9 and 10 Uh, we have them. They were singing a new song What Ron Who some keys here? Can I see those? Me see that. Webster. Webster Recreational Center Schnooks. Looks like a Honda. It's yes. <laughs> no one on the radio. They're not calling in and telling me. All so. right. Thank you, Ron. Alright. So, verse 9 and 10, we have them singing this song. Now I want you to notice something in verse 9. You might skip over this too. I think most of us might. Verse 9, it says they sang a new song, okay? So this new song is them singing, as you can see the words there in the rest of 9 and 10, a song that voices the ultimate victory um, in the presence of God there in heaven. It's a song that's fulfilled with the Lamb there on his throne and the heavenly hosts sing around him. So here, this song, as it's printed there for you, is the new song. This is the victory one. Everything's fulfilled as God said it would be. Because this song contrasts other songs like the song of Moses and the Lamb referenced in Revelation 15 Which that those songs those songs sing of the victory in the midst of suffering Which the followers of Jesus Christ can sing I mean they can sing a song of victory in the midst of suffering because they know Christ has won the victory Even though they're in the midst of suffering and challenges But here in this chapter of Revelation this is the fulfilled final victory song everything is as as God said it would be. The Lamb is seated on the throne with the scroll, and he's got others worshiping around. Because the challenge with Revelation is, is it's not like a chronological front cover of Revelation to the end. Okay? It moves in, in really kind of a cyclical way. And so we see here, and already in chapter 5 is this written for us, them singing this fulfilled song of victory, ultimate victory in God with him seated on the throne. And now look at verse 12. They're singing, and they're saying with a loud voice, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Does that sound familiar to anyone, by the way? What song, what song is it? This is the feast, right? Sounds familiar. Which, there's a reason we sing what we sing in worship. <laughs> Comes from Scripture, okay? Good? So we have, it should sound familiar. Worthy is the Lamb, verse 12, who was slain. Now look what he's worthy to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I know the radio can't see my hands, but I counted seven on my fingers, okay? Again, we don't want to overplay into numbers and just put our, our faith in those, but again, you have God using a number that he uses often, seven completeness. and. It's not like he's just making up things to just get to number seven, okay? I mean, Jesus Christ is fully worthy to have complete worthiness of all things in this world and in the world to come, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So he's worthy of everything. And I also want to point out, too, this, just because it, said, it talks about the Lamb doesn't mean that um, the others are not worthy of those things. Remember, anything that is ascribed to Jesus is the same as to the Spirit and to the Father as well, because they're one God. But here you see specifically another point in Scripture where you can see that Jesus Christ is just as equal to God the Father as, as anything else. They're one God, both worthy of the same praise. Okay. One other thing that I really want to point out here in this portion of Scripture, if you look throughout verses 8 through 14, you kind of see a three-tier way of worship. Okay, So if you go back into verse 8, you have the four living creatures and the 24 elders. The four living creatures and 24 elders, there they are worshiping. And then let's go on to verse um, 11. And then I looked at around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So adding to them now, are many angels, myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, which, I mean, just do the math. I'm not a math guy, but it's a lot, okay? The point, and that's the point is not to be super specific on numbers, but the point is there's thousands and thousands, complete worship, all the angels. And then the final top tier of this, um, and then we get to verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that's in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and might be forever and ever. It's three-tiered level the fact that you have the, this kind of one. Okay, there's worship, the elders and the creatures. Now you're adding the angels. Now you're adding literally everything that's ever existed, ever created, and anything and everywhere. This is full, complete worship. This is, one, what God deserves. But two, this is a picture of what's going to be like. What's it going to be like when Christ comes back? We get to worship the Lamb. Jesus Christ who's the Lamb who sits on the throne, together with every creature that God has created. Full and complete, beautiful worship together. Pretty amazing. Any other, any questions, any thoughts? Maybe I've just done it so detailed again that just nothing I could... As you will see, I, I think I mentioned it briefly, but we had Revelation read for us today. Um, we'll have it read for us next week. Multiple of these weeks uh, here in the Easter season, we'll read from Revelation. Because again, just remember, we have our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives us hope today, and he also gives us hope of that resurrection. And that's always a challenge, too, I think, as, as Christians. We want to be certain that we emphasize the, um, the comfort and hope and peace that we have in that eternal life. And we should always focus on that. But at the same time, we don't want to focus so much on that that we diminish the fact that we have hope and peace and comfort today. And so it's always this dual nature of being able to, to uh, temper the fact that we have both. So we don't want to focus just on the last day and forget about our world today because we've got a life to live. And I pray it's long for many of us because I'm blessed to live here and to serve God in this way. But also to know we have both of those. All right, well then let's turn to um, John chapter 21. John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. And I will read that for us. John 21, verse 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here ends our gospel reading for next week. So, of course, fitting because they spent a lot of time designing the lectionary. Um, But after we celebrate Jesus's resurrection from the dead, now in these weeks following in the Easter season, we have the appearances. Jesus appearing to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, before we get into this, there are some people who struggle with the fact that was this part of, this, this part of Scripture, was this part of John's gospel, or is it just added later? I'm going to be really honest, and maybe this doesn't suffice, and if those want to call in and, and challenge me to give more resources, that's fine. I don't think we should get hung up on that, quite frankly. Okay, one, it is the Word of God. There's a lot of features, and you can get into all this whole mess, and I'm not going to bore you all with it today, but there's a whole lot of resources that say why it actually is part of the gospel. A lot of literary features that's just like the way John wrote. It's just the peop- some people struggle with the fact that this came, that this, they don't think this was part of it. Because if you look in the verses just preceding, if you're holding the entire scripture, John 20, verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so some people think, well, that was the end of it, and then this was just kind of tacked on. I would disagree. I think there's enough evidence to say that this is very much part of it um, and just kind of more of a, an epilogue to it, uh, to the part of John's gospel. But this is, is very much scripture. There's no doubt about it. This is scriptural. This is good. We can base our faith on this, okay? Uh, but I just want to at least alert to the fact there is some debate on it, but um, most all of them side with the fact of what I would agree with, which is good. Okay, I side with more of them because I've learned from their, their wise instruction. Um, so we look at this and we have the fact that Jesus appears to his disciples. Okay. So they had returned. Uh, this occurs after they returned to Galilee. Um, and Jesus had just appeared to Thomas, the infamous story of how he appears to Thomas and shows him his hands and his feet. And then here we get into this account. And it's interesting too. This is the longest account that's recorded in the scripture of one of Jesus's appearances, post-resurrection appearances. I don't know if that does anything for you, but just one of the longest ones. So fun fact. So we look in this and his glory is revealed to his disciples. But let's look at how he did it. So it gets out there in verse 3 and Simon Peter is going fishing. Now, there's some debate also out there that Peter was abandoning his abandoning his task as a disciple. Jesus is his lord and he's seen him raised from the dead and now he's just gone back to being a fisherman. And he's just abandoning his whole task as a disciple to go out I would completely disagree with that. He's going out fishing. He was a fisherman. It's a trade he still can know how to do. Also, I mean, you've got to eat too, right? So it's not him abandoning his task as a disciple. I, I would really, really advise you not to, to fall into that. It's just he's going fishing. And the other disciples say, we'll go with you. So they go out on the boat and they go fishing. They didn't catch anything, which can happen fishing. I'm not a fisherman myself, but I understand that can happen for quite many hours at a time, right? Which is why I don't fish. I can't sit still for that long. As those who are in person can tell, I don't like to sit still, right? So fishing would not be uh, the greatest activity for me So we get in this in verse 4 just as day was breaking Jesus stood on the shore and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus This is not some rejection of Jesus denying him. We don't know him. We don't believe in him. Not at all If you look at it just as day was breaking it's early may not be super well lit Right Jesus is on the shore as we look in verse 8 the shore is about a hundred yards off Maybe they just couldn't see him Right? couldn't recognize that that was Jesus so they can't recognize this Jesus they didn't know that it was him verse 5 Jesus says children do you have any fish now this word children is not some diminutive oh you little children you don't know anything no not at all it's just rather a way that you're refre- reference to him uh, some commentaries uh, and some scholars of the Greek they think it's more of just a colloquial way of saying kind of like guys hey guys you got any fish okay but the point is he's just referring them hey you have any fish? The other thing is, is when he says this, the Greek that's used here is Greek that implies the fact that he knows the answer, an implied answer to the fact, do you have any fish? No, you don't, do you? So hopefully that makes sense. So Jesus, one, knew the answer. Point, he's divine. He knows the answer. He knows what's about to come and what he's going to do. So he says to them, do you have any fish? You don't have any fish, do you? And they say, no. And he says, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some." A couple other things that maybe you haven't heard, and I don't want to confuse you, but I do want to alert you what's out there, is the fact that some people think he's saying, cast on the right side, because that's the lucky side of the boat. Okay? I'm serious. This is written in commentaries that there's a lot of belief out there that in that time they thought that was the lucky side of the boat. You think Jesus is appealing to luck? No. He's not. Okay? And it's not some... oh. It's not like the disciples said, oh, he said to throw it on the lucky side. So let's... No. Okay? It's not about luck. This is simply the fact they were casting their nets, and he says cast it on the other side. The other thing is, is um, apparently they are uh, doing research on how they used to fish. Uh, I learned that they used to have someone who's kind of, lack of better terms, like a spotter. Someone who was on the shore. Maybe he could see, oh, there's like fish over here. Which, I don't know how that works, but apparently they did it. And so some people think, oh, he's the spotter. He could see there was fish, and so he said throw it over... There's nothing we have to base our belief on that. It's the fact that we have the risen Lord and Savior standing on the shore, and he's again going to do something miraculous and show the people that he is the Lord, that he's in control. So he says, throw it on the other side, and they do it. And then, as we know, they catch all this fish. It's so much they couldn't haul it in. But notice, their nets aren't breaking, are they? Which is a contrast from other part of Scripture earlier on in the gospel, when their nets were so full that they were starting to break. I don't know if there's anything big, doctrinally to take from that, but rather than the fact it's just interesting to know. Was they were breaking four when Jesus did something great, and now they're not breaking? The quantity of fish was so great, as we even hear in verse 11, there were 153 of the fish. This is another thing that I would disagree with, that some people think this 153 gets really um, representative of all these people. I don't think there's enough basis to say that this number is some specific application to people who were saved and heard the gospel like it's just simply the fact that with such great detail it's a true story first of all and it's just amazing I mean 153 large fish it's a huge catch again like I said I don't fish but most guys if they catch or, or women if they catch a large fish they want to show you that one right they got one large fish and they're excited so they show you got 153 it's amazing this is awesome so this detail is just simply pointing the fact that it happened and it was such an amazing great large thing that Jesus did and how did Jesus do this look in the scripture how did Jesus do this great thing he get in there turn up a ball of water with his hands this word which, again, just always when we look at things in Scripture and we see what Jesus was doing while he's here in the flesh, look at how did he do it. Because so many times it's simply by him speaking his word. So, again, we see the great um, authority and power that is in the very word of Jesus Christ, who is God himself. And then we get them, they, have their, they catch all their fish, they come in, um, and they, have, they, they eat. They sit down with Jesus, and they eat. Which is just another point of scripture that brings us to a focus on the fact that there, there he is, Jesus Christ, who is Lord, not just Lord, but the risen Lord and Savior, and he's sitting there serving his disciples. He's having a meal with them because if you look at some of the details, he's actually serving with them. I mean, he's got the fire ready and and there's fish laid out on it and bread. And he says to them bring some of the fish over. I mean, so he's serving this meal with them. So. It's, it's not a picture of a Lord who's like, Yeah, I'm gonna go sit on that chair, you cook me up some dinner and bring it. No. He's sitting right there with his people. He's even serving amongst them. He's with them. And so we look in this scripture from John twenty one, and the biggest thing that I want you to take away, the biggest word, if you will reduce it down to word one word, which can be dangerous, but reduce this down to one word, it's revealed. Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. He revealed himself in the flesh after he had already died and risen. He revealed the fact that he is Lord, as is confessed in verse 7 by Peter. He is the Lord. It is the Lord. And he revealed also, too, as he sits there eating with them, that he is the Lord who's there to be with his disciples, who's going to do great things in and through them. And so then also we can just see that, one, this Lord, he had his hand in this whole thing. He was blessing them, um, and he sat down to eat with them. And the last, last thing I want to point out is verse 12. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And this, this term, there's a lot of commentators that see that this term used by Jesus, especially, is like, come here and have breakfast. Come is this, come to discipleship. Come be with me, dwell with me. Because this is, I mean, this is who they are, they're disciples. Come be with their Lord, and then they will go out, as he then will have Ascension Day in a few weeks or so. He will arise, he will, he will no longer be on this earth, but he's, he's been with them and he will send them out to share who he is and what he's done for many people. So I would think I covered that pretty thoroughly because talked a lot, but any questions? Thoughts on the readings for next week? No? All right, well, I'll just start talking for about the next 20 minutes about whatever I feel like, right? No, 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 no. Although captive audiences are great because I love to talk, um, which you wouldn't have guessed by by getting to know me when I was a little kid, but now I sometimes don't stop, right? Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, again we thank you with such great thanks that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, and we get to celebrate his resurrection. We thank you that today we got to study your word, that we get to see in your word that, that your son, Jesus Christ, truly has risen from the dead. He appeared to his disciples, and we are blessed to have their first-hand eyewitness testimony, to see the fact that it's true, that he's risen, and that he has come to do great things in and through them, especially through your disciple Paul, that you've used him so wondrously. I said, Lord, we pray that you would use us as well. One, first and foremost, strengthen us in faith towards you, but then use us. Use us to share share your son with other people. Use us to share your love with others. And use us so that simply, Lord, more people can come to know you. So that together we can all be with you and all the creatures in heaven and on earth in that glorious resurrection one day. With the Lamb, your Son, Jesus Christ, seated on the throne. And so, Lord, we pray these things and all things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. Have a great day.